chapter 29, verse 1. Woe to Ariel, Ariel the city where David lodged, though you add year to year and the feast days recur in succession. Yet will I distress Ariel, there shall be mourning and sorrow when she becomes as my altar hearth. The word altar hearth in verse 2 is again the same word as the word Ariel. The word Ariel can mean altar hearth, it also means lion of God. So it kind of has a twofold connotation. The people can go two ways, either become as a lion of God or they become burned up in the altar hearth. The city where David lodged, the Lord's servant, is alluded to here. There is an instance of what's called Zion ideology, destruction of the wicked, deliverance of the righteous, at the mention of the Lord's servant. This alludes more to the Jewish aspect rather than the Ephraimite aspect of the Lord's people. They're very much into feast days, and they celebrate them from year to year, and feast days recur in succession. But the outward form of worship, just like we saw earlier, doesn't serve very much. And that day you're going to need more than just outward performances. It's part of the same covenant with death syndrome or the uh, arm of flesh or the human schemes or human ideas that are relied upon here versus revelation from God. How is he going to deal with them? I will encamp against you round about and beleaguer you with assault posts and erect siege installations against you. So they're going to come under siege or invasion or under attack from all sides. And when you have been laid low, that is in the dust, which is a chaos motif, you will speak from the ground, your words uttering out of the dust. Your voice from the ground shall be like that of a medium. Your sayings whisper out of the dust. When? Well, at any time. It happened in the past when the Lord's people, the Jews in particular, were destroyed by the Romans or by the Babylonians, and their recorded history, their scriptural history, was kept by the prophets and the scribes, the righteous of the Lord's people, and in some future day, when the masses of the Lord's people have been wiped out, in some future day, their words will have meaning for future generations, and perhaps be a lesson to them then, when history repeats itself. Now, in the book of Isaiah, the siege roundabout happens when the Assyrians lay siege to Zion or Jerusalem in chapters 36 and 37. That is likely a linking idea, so that the wicked of Judah or the Lord's people are besieged by an Assyrian alliance or Assyrian armies from all sides, or will be in that day of judgment. And they will be laid low then, as the Lord's people were laid low anciently. And also the voice from the ground, voice is a metaphor describing the Lord's servant. So this alludes to his ability or his gift to act like a medium to translate the sayings or the words of the ancient generations of God's people to the present day or to the modern generations of God's people. The words of those who were laid low in the dust, who disappeared because of wickedness or the judgments of God coming upon them. He's like a seer who can see the past and the future and also convey the words of those who lie in the dust to his generation. Verse 5, Suddenly in an instant, your crowds of evildoers shall become as fine dust, your violent mobs like flying chaff. Dust and chaff are chaos motifs again. And who is it that's turned into dust? 
the righteous? No. The righteous are preserved in the book of Isaiah and in Exodus. They walk through the water, through the fire. The elements can't hurt them. No army arraigned against them can hurt them. So what's protection for the righteous of the Lord's people? But the crowds of evildoers, the violent mobs, alluding to the fact that in that day of judgment, there'll be people crowding into mobs of a violent nature. There'll be lots of that going on. It'll be a sign of the times, so to speak. They will be the ones who will become a non-entity in an instant, suddenly. In other words, like the Sodom and Gomorrah destruction that was instantaneous, or like you would have today with nuclear weapons. They're there one minute, the next minute they're gone. She shall be chastened by the Lord of hosts with thunderous quakings, verse 6, resounding booms, tempestuous blasts, and conflagrations of devouring flame, which could be alluding to nuclear destruction. Those two verses together, thunderous quakings, resounding booms, tempestuous blasts, conflagrations of devouring flame, and destruction in an instant, suddenly, certainly that's possible with today's technology, military technology. The flame also is a metaphor describing the king of Assyria. So it alludes to his orchestration or engineering of this destruction. And he's the one whom the Lord commissions against his wicked people to destroy them anyway. She is the harlot, the Lord's people, who are the wife of the Lord, but here in this case in their wicked aspect. Verse 7, And the nations amassed to fight against Ariel, all who congregate at her stronghold to distress her, shall be as a dream seen in the night. Now, even though these nations, this Assyrian alliance of nations, it is what it is in the book of Isaiah, even though they come against the Lord's people and cause such horrendous destruction of the wicked, they themselves also don't last very long. They themselves are also destroyed. We see over and over how the Assyrians, whatever they do to God's people is also done to them. They don't stay around very long themselves. These nations amass to fight against Ariel. They congregate at their stronghold. In chapters 36 and 37, we see them having conquered the whole world and laying siege to Zion. And in chapter 17, it talks about, Woe to the many peoples in an uproar who rage like the raging of the seas, tumultuous nations in commotion like the turbulence of mighty waters. And it says there that those nations will be driven before the wind like chaff on the mountains or as whirling dust in a storm. After they cause that destruction, after they serve the Lord's purpose of destroying the wicked, then they themselves are dealt with in like measure. It says, They shall be as a dream seen in the night. Verse 7. Verse 8. Like a hungry man who dreams he eats, but awakens famished. Or like a thirsty man who dreams he drinks, but wakes up faint and craving. So shall be the nations that amass to fight against Mount Zion. Here, Ariel is paralleled with Mount Zion. They amass to fight against Ariel, verse 7, and they amass to fight against Mount Zion, verse 8. That's not necessarily a synonymous parallelism. It may be a complementary parallelism. It's the same as we have Zion and Jerusalem, and not necessarily the same place in the book of Isaiah. Sometimes they appear in parallelism, but that doesn't mean to say that there are synonymous entities. They may be complementary entities. At any rate, the Assyrians amass to fight against both. And this is where that idea of fighting against Mount Zion comes from, from this verse in the book of Isaiah. And Mount Zion is that level of people on the spiritual ladder that's a step above Jacob or Israel. It is the Jerusalem Zion level, which is the level of the righteous people of God 
and they're the ones who are preserved. Zion is a safe place. There's deliverance in Zion. That's a specific place. Ariel is a specific place, like Mount Zion. But it also designates a people, a level of people. So it's both a people and a place, like Babylon is both a people and a place. The world at large and its wicked inhabitants in Zion are those who repent, and the place to which they assemble or return, which is a place of protection for them. In Mount Zion, the sinners of the Lord's people are also destroyed in the book of Isaiah. There are sinners in Zion spoken of. That is what happens. It's a twofold scenario. On the one hand, destruction of the wicked of the Lord's people in their own land, and on the other, the deliverance of the righteous of the Lord's people in their own land. So Ariel fits the bill the same way. That's why you have the twofold meaning of that word, the Lion of God alluding to those who survive, and the altar hearth alluding to those who are wiped out. Back to the man who dreams, the dream seen in the night. This day of judgment is compared to a night. It just happens kind of overnight, and the next morning it's over. It's the morning of the millennium. The hungry man and the thirsty man alludes to covenant curse. It alludes to these people. They will be under a covenant curse. They will think that they're going to deal the death blow to God's people by conquering even the righteous people in Zion, and they come away empty. That's when they come to grief. It's at the time after they've conquered the whole world, as we see in chapters 36 and 37, then when they lay siege to Zion, then the Assyrian alliance of nations are themselves destroyed, and they are wiped out. So all those who remain after the wicked have killed the wicked, and those wicked are themselves destroyed, then only the people of Zion are left. It's like an overnight destruction. Verse 9, procrastinate and become bewildered. Preoccupy yourselves until you cry for help. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not from strong drink. The Lord has poured out on you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. Similar to chapter 28, but not exactly the same imagery. Word links, yes, drunkenness, prophets, seers. What is the problem here? In chapter 28, it was delusion and relying upon falsehoods and deception. Here, it is more or less a preoccupation with other things, perhaps with the feast days recurring and people observing performances and ordinances, maybe a preoccupation with those things, so that when the Lord's work begins of destruction and of deliverance, they're bewildered, they don't know what's going on. They cry for help. So they too, in a way, are in a drunken state, but not necessarily with the wine of falsehood. The drunkenness could be a preoccupation with temporal things. The Lord has poured out on you a spirit of deep sleep. They're in a drunken sleep because their preoccupation with things causes them to be asleep spiritually. They're like the babes that don't grow. Their eyes are not open because they're just preoccupied with trivia. He has shut your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. Showing that the eyes are the prophets and the heads are the seers alluding to the leadership of the people again. The prophets are supposed to be the eyes and ears of the people, but they don't have them anymore. It's a reflection of the people themselves. You can't blame the prophets and the seers because they are simply a reflection of the masses in general. The Lord gives the people what they want. Their spiritual state reflects that of the people. Verse 11, For you the sum of vision, or apocalyptic vision, an entire vision, or a cosmic vision, has become as the words of a sealed book that they give to one who is learned, saying, please read this, 
And he answers, I cannot, it is sealed. Or if they give it to one who is unlearned, saying, please read this, he answers, I'm unlearned. So either way, apocalyptic vision is a massive confusion to people, to the learned and the unlearned alike. Why? It gives you the answer in the next verse. My Lord says, because these people approach me with the mouth and pay me homage with their lips, while their heart remains far from me, their piety toward me consisting of commandments of men learned by rote. Very similar to chapter 28, the Kavlakav, Tzavlatav mentality, the rote method of learning. These are actually religious people. They're preoccupied with the outward observances rather than with the real meat of the Word of God. It says these people, alluding to the alienated condition of these people. They approach him with the mouth, pay him homage with their lips, but their heart is far from him. Commandments of men versus commandments of God. Learned by rote versus receiving revelation and inspiration. Verse 14, Therefore it is that I shall again astound these people with wonder upon wonder, rendering void the knowledge of their sages, the intelligence of their wise men, insignificant. So while the people are in this condition, remaining in this particular phase of religious observance, not getting to the heart of things, not getting revelation through prophets and seers, the Lord is going to astound them or surprise them, spring a surprise upon them of some kind that's going to serve as a test for them. But he's not going to do something totally new that he hasn't done before. The Lord has done new things in the past that surprises people and took them off guard, took the wicked off guard. The knowledge of their sages and their wise men becomes nothing. Like all the books written about God's revelations don't mean very much when they don't help you in the present situation. You know, there are all these commentaries of the scriptures and what are they all really for if they don't get you out of the fix or teach you what God is going to do in that day so that you can participate in his saving events rather than his destructive events. Their knowledge is useless in that day. It's like the idols of Babylon are useless. They're no God and they can't save you in that day. Also, the word knowledge implies a covenantal type of knowledge. Knowledge in the book of Isaiah is correctly defined, properly defined as knowledge of God or the things of God. The idea is to get to know God through his word and through living his law and commandments. Instead, these are commandments of men, so they're not getting closer to God, they're actually getting further away from him. These are alienated in the sense that their piety or their religious observance is really not for real. It's just surfacy. Verse 15, Woe to those who contrive to hide their schemes from the Lord. They work in the dark thinking, who will see us? Who will know? And it may be an allusion to those who are living religious observance on the one hand, on the outside, and doing other things like this, on the other hand, in an underhand way. That's why they're blinded as to what's really happening. Maybe that's why they're buying into the knowledge of the sages, of the wise men, of the rabbis, or whoever it may be, or the scholars. They're buying into that, and they don't want to know better. Their own lives are full of machinations, preoccupied with schemes, political schemes, and money-making schemes, and so forth. Who will see us? Who will know? Verse 16, what a contradiction you are. They themselves are a contradiction, because they're children of God, acting like they're children of the devil, or that God doesn't exist, doesn't see them. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? The Lord is the potter. 
You think you can mold God? Shall what is made say of its maker, he did not make me? Or a work of its designer, he doesn't understand? In a sense, they think they know better than God. God is the maker and the designer. And they act as if they themselves are gods. In a very little while shall not Lebanon again become a fruitful field, and lands now fruitful be considered backwards, or bush, or forest, or jungle. What is that alluding to? It means that the Lord is going to turn the whole situation around. There's going to be a reversal of circumstances. And those now scheming and contriving and working in the dark will be exposed. They will become backwards. They'll be gone. They'll be swallowed up. Lebanon is a figure of Israel, or the Lord's people and their land, their promised land, which has been a desert or a waste since the ancient destructions, will now become fruitful. And lands that are not fruitful, where these wicked people are living, will be considered backwards. There won't be anybody there anymore. They'll be the deserted areas, where the wicked people will be destroyed off the land. This is an allusion to that reversal of circumstances that's a theme all the way through the book of Isaiah. Verse 18, In that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind see out of gross darkness. The book is the one spoken of in verse 11, the book that is sealed. That is sealed as far as its apocalyptic vision or vision of the end of the world is concerned. They can't see that. But in that day, in that day of judgment, that book will be unsealed, and people will be able to hear and see what it contains. That book is, first of all, the book of Isaiah, which is a sealed book. And only its literary devices, when they're unsealed, help you to see the book of Isaiah as a vision of the end from the beginning, a vision of the end of the world, a vision of coming destruction and the deliverance that the Lord has prepared for his righteous people and their millennial inheritance. But the book can also be any book that has apocalyptic vision in it, such as the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation, For any sealed book, all sealed books in that day will be unsealed. The sum of vision has become as the words of a sealed book. Any sealed book, any sum of vision, any apocalyptic vision. The deaf and the blind are the Lord's own people in the book of Isaiah. We see that in the 40s, later on in the book of Isaiah. The Lord's people are blind and deaf because they're into idolatry and other things. In this case, they're blind and deaf because of their only partial religious observance. They're also blind and deaf in chapter 28 in the sense in that they are drunk with the wine of deception. If they will repent, they will see and hear again. Their eyes will be opened, their ears unstopped. We saw that in chapter 6 where Isaiah receives a commission. It says that lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and repent and be healed. That's a formula for salvation means that certain people will be taking the right steps and they will be the ones to understand the sealed books. Not everybody will because many people will also remain blind and deaf that day. Also, darkness implies they have been in a state of ignorance as far as the law and word of God are concerned. They're brought out of darkness into his marvelous light through the agency of the Lord's servant, who is the one who enlightens them, who enlightens up the darkness. That's his job. Chapter 42, it says, His job is to open the eyes that are blind and free captives from confinement from prison. Those who sit in darkness is to be a light to the nations. So the one who unseals the book is the Lord's servant. 
The lowly shall obtain an increase of joy in the Lord, and the poorest of men rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. That's linked to the blind and deaf. As we've already seen before, the lowly and poor are the ones who are the Lord's own people. They are called His covenant people in that day. So we're talking here about the elect or the righteous who come out of a situation of darkness, of blindness, of deafness, perhaps poverty or underprivileged condition, and then they are brought into a situation of light and prosperity again. And joy, implying there was no joy there before. They shall obtain an increase of joy in the Lord, and the poorest of men rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. As they have hitherto not done, they didn't know the Holy One of Israel. They were blind and deaf. They were in darkness. Now they rejoice. It alludes to their conversion to the Holy One of Israel. Holy One because that's his exemplary attribute, his holiness, implying that they themselves become holy. Verse 20, For tyrants shall come to naught, and scorners cease. All who persist in wickedness shall be cut off. So those who don't follow that course, those who don't repent and see and hear and are healed or saved, they will be cut off. The scorners, we saw those in chapter 28, who preside over the people. And tyrants, the Assyrians particularly, or anybody who's tyrannical who follows the king of Assyria's example of tyranny. All who persist in wickedness shall be cut off. That is, cut off from among the people of God. All through the scriptures, that phrase, cut off, means to be cut off from among the people. The people of God It also means to be cut out of life, cut off the face of the earth. Those who, at a word, judge a man to be guilty. Someone says, well, he did so-and-so. And so you judge that person on the basis of someone's word, which may be a false word, maybe it's be a rumor or a false judgment. And so people judge a person on the basis of lies, without proof, without two or more witnesses. Those who at a word judge a man to be guilty who ensnare the defender at court. Liars, trying to trick people into incriminating themselves, who for nothing turn away him who's in the right. On a technicality, your case has no merit, so there's nothing we can do to help you. Sorry. Some kind of scenario like that. The underlying theme being injustice and oppression. That is the condition of the wicked, and that justifies their being cut off. Verse 22, Therefore thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham to the house of Jacob. Whenever it uses a name like that, who redeemed Abraham, then it implies that Abraham of old set a precedent of being redeemed. How did he redeem him? Well, he redeemed him from destruction in Babylon. He delivered him from the famine and the curse there, and many other instances. Abraham's redemption is a type of his descendants' redemption in this case. As he redeemed Abraham, who was just one guy, says in chapter 51, Look to Abraham your father. He was but one when I called him, but I blessed him by making him many. So individuals like Abraham can be redeemed of the Lord. No matter how bad a situation they may be in, no matter what situation of covenant curse they may be under, they can be like Abraham. No longer shall Jacob be dismayed, his face shall grow pale no more. Jacob was dismayed when Esau confronted him, but as the Lord delivered Jacob from Esau, so he can deliver Jacob's descendants from modern Esau's or from those who assume that they have the birthright that have really sold their birthright for a mess of pottage. No longer shall Jacob be dismayed, his face shall grow pale no more. There are those, in other words, who are oppressing the humble people of God, the poor and the lowly, 
and the blind and the deaf, there are those who are oppressing them. And they're living in a situation of oppression and injustice. And God is going to redeem those people and claim them as his own and bring them into his covenant again. The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob today will become as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of old, who are their type and their ancestors. Verse 23, For when he sees among him his children, the work of my hands, hallowing my name, devoted to the Holy One of Jacob, reverencing the God of Israel, then will the erring in spirit gain understanding, and they who murmured accept instruction. Well, this implies conversion again, the same idea as the blind seeing and the deaf hearing. That's conversion. They will gain understanding. Those who erred in spirit, those who were in error, for one reason or another, because of the false religious observance, perhaps, or because they were generally so oppressed that they couldn't see the light of day, but also those who murmured, those who perhaps fell away from the religion of God, or even apostate or erroneous versions of God's religion, or God's law and word, the commandments of men, whatever. Whoever murmured, and anciently we saw examples of murmuring in the Israelites in their Sinai wilderness wandering, they will then accept instruction. Instruction is again that word that we've used before in chapter 28. Whom shall he give instruction? Whom shall he enlighten with revelation? So those people who come up from a state of total darkness to a state of accepting revelation and instruction from God. When he sees among him his children, that is, returning home, returning home from exile, as Abraham returned from exile, and as Jacob returned from Haran, as Abraham came into the promised land from Babylonia, and as Jacob came back from Haran into the land of Canaan, the promised land. The work of my hands alludes to the ten tribes. We saw that in chapter 19, and several other places, the ten tribes go into the land of the north, and they return from the land of the north, and are called the work of the Lord's hands. Assyria, the work of my hands, in chapter 19, verse 25. Alluding to the remnant of Assyria, or those who remain of Assyria, who are the ten tribes, who return from exile back to the promised land in that day of judgment. Hallowing my name, sanctifying the name, devoted to the Holy One of Jacob, reverencing the God of Israel. Conversion again, the idea of conversion. So then the commandments of men will be done away and divine revelation and understanding will take their place. 